Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From farming fungus to antibacterial delivering ants this week, collaborations in food. So you may know penicillin, but how does it relate to the production of camembert? And how can we strain wild strains of fungus to invent new types of food? plus the way that ants work together to help keep their plants alive, and the unusual collaboration between different strains of bacteria, helping keep them alive. So a lot of the time, people tend to hear the word microbe, maybe mold, or even just bacteria, and their mind starts to immediately think of all the ways those things can harm you or get you become sick, or cause any other number of inconveniences or problems in your life. And whilst that is certainly true, microbiology is incredibly fascinating. And we think about it as a modern invention, something developed during the Enlightenment and beyond as chemistry and biology sort of enhanced, when we could have tools to actually study the microbes in details using things like microscopes, hence the name microbiology. Well, that's actually more to do to the size more than anything else. But more specifically, we've been doing these things like culturing bacteria, growing them, watching them evolve, domesticating them and taming them to our own uses for thousands of years. Because that's what we do as humans with animals, in this case with bacteria or fungus. We actually tend to cultivate them and we actually eat them. Now, this might seem like a bit of a shock, but that's exactly what goes in the process of producing cheese. Let's take a soft cheese like camembert, for example. Now, camembert comes from a certain region in France, much the same way as brie comes from a certain region as France too. It's more to describe the type of the process used to create the cheese, but it is effectively a soft cheese. And it starts off by taking warmed cow milk and chucking in some mesophilic bacteria. Hang on a second, you think this is a bit strange, but no, actually, that's a very important part of the cheesemaking process. Then they go through adding the rennet and letting it coagulate, forming curds, and that sort of gets shaped into a cylindrical camembert malt. They're turned over time, and the whey is drained away evenly to cut the curds and make into the cheese shape that you know or recognise from a camembert. And at that point, the cheese is hard, crumbly, and pretty bland. So why would we bother doing all of that if we could make it more delicious? And that's where we actually rely on Penicillium camemberti, which is a mould. Basically, the creators of this cheese then fill it with a little spray with some suspended mould in it with some water. And this mould, a particular mould, Penicillium camemberti, is then spray applied to all the sides of the cheese. And what actually happens is as this cheese is left to ripen for at least three weeks, often more, is there's a reaction as that mould starts to eat on the skin of the cheese. And it turns it into a really tasty but edible rind. And as part of the chemical result, the interior develops a more creamy, delicious flavour, which has two amazing benefits. The first is that, of course, We now have a hard exterior which protects the soft cheese, but it can also still be eaten and in fact tastes good. And that coating from the fungus helps improve the flavour of the soft cheese inside. That seems pretty amazing to think about because it's a result of 
the addition of some mesophilic bacteria and importantly a mold of fungal penicillin camembertii. Now thinking about it seems really strange when you think about cheese that way because most cheeses go through a similar process. Scientists have known about that for a long time and studied that but the way in which cheese fungus grows and evolves and changes is also incredibly interesting and that's what researchers including Dr. Benjamin Wolfe from Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, have been investigated. Now, because what they noticed was something incredibly strange in their own microbiology lab, which originally had nothing to do with cheese. Now, what this lab had actually been growing was penicillin commune, which is a wild bluish wild type fungus. And they were growing it because they were trying to understand how that particular wild fungus actually grows on other cheeses and other foods because it's a well-known fungus that can be pretty damaging for the industri agricultural industries and this is the funny thing to think about some fungus like camembertii actually is quite helpful for some food whereas others like penicillin commune still from the same family are incredibly devastating and wolf likens the smell of this particular fungus to smelling like a damp basement but what they noticed was that over time some of the lab dishes containing the stinky, smelly penicillin communo mold pretty rapidly stopped having a funky, blue, musty smelling fungus. And in fact, they even stopped producing any toxins at all. They began to become white and mellow, didn't produce any bad odors. In fact, the odor was quite pleasant. It smelled like freshly cut glass or like camembert. And that was pretty exciting because when they actually looked inside and analyzed the contents of that, it did seem like that penicillin commune had evolved and changed to become much, much more similar to penicillin camembertii, the find of fungus we find in camembert. So now that they had that happy accident of discovering that they accidentally almost produced camembert fungus in their lab, they tried to see if they could replicate it and understand what was going on. So what they did was they collected wild samples of fungus from a cheese cave up in Vermont. And that, that cave had been colonized by various different strands of penicillin molds. Now what the researchers did is they collected all of these molds and these fungus and they took it back to the lab. And in some dishes, the mold was left to grow on its own, isolated from other molds. And the other ones were left to grow alongside other microbes. And the thing is, in the world of cheese colonization or any real microbiology, it's pretty competitive. So those other microbes were fighting amongst each other compared to their isolated brethren. And what they found very quickly is the mold started to appear blue, green and fuzzy, virtually unchanged from the experimental tests. But over time, the molds that were left on their own had their appearance changing. It took about three to four weeks, during which the molds were transferred from one fresh petri dish to another, and then from one into one containing cheese curds to simulate the, the exposure to cheese in a cheese cave. And 30 to 40% of the mold samples began to look a lot more like P. camembert. Now in this instance, there wasn't any P. camembert around, they had just put in the cheese curds. They hadn't gone through the full camembert production process where they put in some penicillin camembertii, they just put in the cheese, raw material of the cheese curds itself. But the, the fungus that they had in those sample dishes, all these different wild funguses, actually began to start to look like pea camembertii. In some dishes, the, the fungus grew whiter and smoother. In others, less fuzzy. 
Now, interestingly, the, the moles that were in the competitive mode, where they had lots of different fungal strains fighting for survival against each other, they didn't evolve as quickly or as noticeably. When they looked at this from a genetic perspective, they saw there was really rapid genetic mutations going on, but there wasn't any obvious culprit. There wasn't any type of gene trigger that was suddenly saying, hey, now we found some cheese, we need to evolve and change super rapidly. But there must be a trigger, and this could be present in other types of fermented foods, because there's other things out there that use fermentation, beer, wine, sake, even soy sauce, all these things use fermentation as part of the process, and we've been doing them for thousands of years. And that means we've been domesticating fungus and microbes and bacteria as part of the process as well. Now, if you start from a wild strain base, you can get to almost a new type of fungus, as they've done in this case here. They've taken wild fungus from a cheese cave and developed something that is similar to penicillin camemberti, but with its own Vermont cheese cave inspiration. And this just goes to show how intricate the production of food has been and how dependent humans are on using all the resources around them, including microbes and fungus. And we've been doing this for hundreds and thousands of years. That's some pretty exciting research at a tough university, but it also has potentially some applications for developing new types of food. Because if this process for what causes this rapid evolution of different fungus can be discovered and unlocked, then we could as Wolf points out, maybe go out and find some unusual wild strains of certain fungal, to bring them back into the lab and domesticate them. And then we could have whole new approaches to making cheese that would be region specific. And that's pretty exciting to think about because that kind of crop domestication is really important in agriculture, but fungus and bacteria can be just another crop that needs to be analyzed and farmed. This is some great research from Tufts University that was published in the journal MBio. Other authors on this paper include Ina Bunidaku, Jason Schaefer, and Alison Golden. Now, humans aren't the only creatures on Earth that partake in agriculture. Now we just talked about a way that humans can harvest and harness the fungus and bacteria to help grow and create new types of food sources, but we're not the only people that do that, we're not the only creatures that do that in fact. Now we know, for example, that ants farm aphids. Aphids are small little bugs that are sap secreting. And what they actually do, or the ants that is, is that they farm the aphids, they protect them and let them feed on some plants and they keep them happy and well looked after. They protect them from predators and they make sure they have enough food. But then the ants also help milk honeydew out of the aphids, the secretions of the aphids, which then the ants feed on. And this relationship is called mutualism. They actually work together with the ants. The ants don't eat the aphids, they just milk them, look after them and tend them. They have domesticated the aphids. So ants will guard and protect their herd of aphids, much in the same way that a farmer looked after its herd of cows or sheep. And this is pretty amazing to think about. But some new research showed just another way that ants are also helping and their farmed creatures. In this case, this research is done by Aarhus University researchers Joachim Offenberg and Christian Damgard, and published in the journal Ocus. Now, what they were looking at is a way that ants are actually protecting not creatures like aphids, but 
the plants themselves. And what they've found is that ants inhibit at least 14 different types of plant diseases just by being around the plant. And what they believe the process which they're protecting these plants by is actually by secreting small amounts of antibiotics from various glands scattered across their body. Now, this could be parts on their legs or on their, on their main torso or their abdomen. And they also host all varieties of colonies of bacteria on the ant body that themselves secrete certain types of antibiotics. And it's this combination, the antibiotics directly from the ant and the antibiotics from the bacteria living on the ant, that actually helps build up a natural biological resistance or pesticide that helps keeps the plants that these ants are living on free from harm. The thing is that ants themselves are always packed together in their ant hills, so they're always highly exposed to infection but they have their own medications against disease so that they can use this to keep themselves clean, but they also can treat each other. Actually, we've seen before that ants can apply these medicines to protect and heal other ants. Now they do this, as we said, through body glands that secrete antibiotics and also these bacterial colonies that they live on them and that they cultivate to an extent. Now, previous research has shown that wood ants, when they've been moved into an apple plantation, are able to reduce the occurrence of two types of apple disease scab and apple rot. Now that raised a lot of questions so the researchers went back and looked through all existing literature and found scientific evidence that ants can in fact inhibit over 14 different types of plant disease. Now the mechanism for how they're doing so is not yet understood. It's obviously they have these antibiotics and that they have these antibacterial communities living on them that can obviously help fight off infections. But this is a pretty strange thing to see that they're able to cure plant diseases. Now the research is digging into this because of course finding out a way ants can fight back against bacteria, especially bacterial resistance, is incredibly important for our own research and efforts. But it also could lead to the development of cleaner pesticides by relying on ones that are already naturally occurring in nature produced by ants. This is a great research published in the journal Oikos. like to think in biological terms normally in the idea of survival of the fittest. This Darwinian maxim is a helpful tool to understand a lot of different evolutionary and biological interactions between species and amongst species. Now sometimes, in the case we just talked about with ants and aphids, you end up with mutualism, things working together, or symbiosis. But there's another more complex type of interaction going on inside microbes. And researchers from the University of Copenhagen, Department of Biology, led by Professor Soren Johannes Sorensen have been investigating an ex interesting case of not survival of the fittest, but survival of the friendliest when it comes to groups of bacteria. Now, what they've been studying has been showing that the bacteria themselves would rather work together and unite against external threats rather than fight each other. Now, what kind of external threats would a bacteria have? Well, prey, for example, or antibiotics. So the idea that bacteria is working together to fight back against antibiotics is probably not good news for us, but fascinating research for researchers, which is why it was published in the ISME journal. Now, what they did is they took bacteria from a small corn husk, and they were forced to basically, by putting them into a cramped area, they made them fight for space for survival. 
Or at least, that's what they thought they were doing. But the scientists were able to investigate the degrees to which bacteria competed or cooperated to survive. They selected a whole variety of bacterial strains, but they tried to find ones that were based on their ability to grow together, because at least they would have a better chance of succeeding and surviving on this corn husk. Now, the researchers measured, as their key indicator of bacterial growth, the growth of the bacterial biofilm, which is a slimy protective layer that shields bacteria against all kinds of threats, like antibiotics or even predators. When bacteria is healthy and doing well, they produce more biofilm, and they become stronger and more resilient. But time after time in this study, the researchers kept observing the same result. Instead of the strongest bacterial species or strain outcompeting all the others and occupying the entirety of the biofilm, there was space left in the production of the biofilm to some of the weaker species, which allowed the weaker ones to grow much, much better than they would have been if they'd left on their own. In fact, in a control study where you compare a strain that's particularly weak to give it to grow on its own or growing together in one of these areas with a stronger bacterial strain, the, the one growing together with the other bacteria did a lot better. And that's because there was a lot of things going on. For example, the researchers could clearly see that the bacteria split up laborious tasks by shutting down some unnecessary mechanisms and sharing resources with their neighbours and helping to work together almost like an assembly line. The bacteria tended to organise itself, not only giving space for other areas to grow, but also help sharing and distributing work and cooperating. And that's a pretty incredible thing to think about bacteria doing. Now, they also investigated something incredibly interesting that was going on inside the bacteria. And what they saw is the idea of group synergy. Now, in human teams, we often see the idea of collaborating with someone else gives you a whole new set of skills or brings to the surface an idea or a skill that you may have not known you've had. And that's what makes working in teams for humans so exciting. But bacteria take this one step further when they're in these small little communities. What they do is actually induce attributes in their neighbours. So one bacteria will induce an attribute in their neighbouring bacteria. And that normally, that gene sure is there, but it's dormant and not active. But having the right neighbouring bacteria around can actually spark that attribute into action. And that would have never have happened if the bacteria had been on its own. And this is why some totally random new features and new abilities of this bacteria suddenly emerge purely by the presence and the inspiration from other bacteria. And if you left single isolated strains, they would never develop these functional items. But working together in a community, these bacteria do develop all kinds of strange, new, exciting features and functions. And this is probably why they're so hardy and resilient. And we like to think in the arms race against bacteria and the development of antibiotics that, you know, we have a step ahead of them because we're working in collaborative teams of researchers across the world. But bacteria are doing exactly the same thing on a microbiological level, which is amazing to think about, but challenging for researchers. But the other aspect here opens new avenues for researchers to investigate, because a lot of the time, a lot of our biotechnology is based around harnessing a single organism. But this research clearly shows that when these organisms are working together in a community, they can unlock entire new features that we didn't know were possible. So it really sheds light on potentially a new area of drug development and biotechnology, where you could harness these clusters of collaborative bacteria to work together. Now, this is some great research out of the University of Copenhagen, published in the ISME Journal. And other lead authors include Wenzheng Liu, Samuel Jacquard, Asker Benrod, and Jacob Roussel. 
This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From taming wild fungus to the ants keeping their plants alive with antibiotics, and even the way bacteria collaborate to survive. All this week and more, microbes collaborating. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.